0: are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene online at bethanynaz.org. Well, hey, good morning. How are you? Oh, come on. It almost feels like we have a little bit of like post-spring like, spring break blues here. So, let me hear you again. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Hey, if you're new here, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at BFC, and we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, as Pastor Jake said, we are in week two of a series called With. And uh, Pastor Rick kicked this off last week and really kind of laid the foundation and the premise of what this series is all about. And the series is one in which we're being guided by a book with the same title. And uh, the author of that book is Guy Jatani. And the premise of that book and the premise of the series is that We often start our walks with Christ and begin to follow Jesus with a sense of excitement and with great expectations for what it is that God has in store and beginning to imagine what life with God would look like. But somewhere along the road, we get to a point where we begin to to kind of take back control. We begin to replace a life with God with maybe a life for God or a life over God or a life from God. And today what we're going to look at is the ways in which we replace a life with God for a life under God. And on the surface it sounds good, but when you dig a little bit deeper you realize that it's really nothing compared to a life with God. Um, I was reminded this week about um, a few years ago our son Micah, who's nine now, we were trying to figure out, okay, Micah, how do you want to celebrate your birthday? And he said, you know, I I really, I want to go to an amusement park. I've never been on a roller coaster. I want to go and go to an amusement park and hop on a roller coaster. And so we were living in Indianapolis at the time. We drove over into Ohio and went to King's Island. And there, as we're driving, we're kind of not... Understanding of how is Micah or, for that matter, how is Karis going to respond to this? It's their first time going to a theme park, and uh, as we get closer, you can kind of see the roller coasters peek up over the tree line, right? And so then excitement starts to build for Micah, and he's like, "Oh, there's a roller coaster!" And he's kind of like back in the back of the car, pumping his fist. He's so excited, and Karis is excited, and so we get inside the gates to the to the park. We get in line, we say, okay, let's try this roller coaster first, because this looks like it's manageable. So we hop in line, and my expectation is that Micah is going to love this. Our son Micah, we sometimes call him Kamikaze Kid, he is the one that is just the adrenaline junkie of our family. And so we kind of anticipate Micah's going to love this. We're not quite sure how Karis is going to do um, if you've ever met Karis, Karis is very, um, she's very imaginative, almost, almost so much so that uh, her imagination runs so wild that sometimes we wonder, is she really in touch with reality, right? And so we're kind of wondering, we think that Micah is going to love it, but Karis is going to get to a point where she's kind of in her own imagination uh, land, and yet she's going to get on the roller coaster and she's going to have this kind of reality check, And so we get on the coaster and we start getting cranked up to the first drop and I'm sitting next to Micah and Karis is in the back sitting next to Whitney and Micah begins to grab on my hand. And that's when I realize, you know what? It's Micah who's in store for a reality check because we're cranking up to the first drop and Karis is in the back just kicking her feet. Her hands are up in the air. She's like, woo, let's do this. And Micah is holding on to my hand for dear life, and we go over the first drop, and then Micah starts shouting, I don't know about this, Dad. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know about this. And so we go through the whole roller coaster, and we get off, and I tell Micah, wasn't that great? He says, no, I don't want to do that again. And I'm thinking, we came out here for you, right? And Karis is the one from now on. She is hands up, ready to go, loves any every bit of adrenaline. And I think about that story because I think that's often what a life with God actually looks like. Where sometimes we get started with this sense of excitement and anticipation and we're eager to jump in. And then we get up to the highest point of that and we look down and we realize that sometimes there are drops in a life with God. That it's not all mountaintops that sometimes there are valleys that we hit. Sometimes we look over the edge and we hold on for dear life and we say, I don't know about this anymore. I don't know if I want to do this. Sometimes I think life with God is really like that. And when that happens, we are often tempted to begin to replace a life with God for a different kind of life one that is more manageable for us, one in which we get to control the heights and the valleys, one in which we get to control the speed of the curves, one in which we get to control everything that we experience in life. And that is exactly what a life under God looks like. The life under God is described as one in which we obey God because we trust God. That our obedience will bring about blessing. We do what is right and we do what is good because God has told us that. We live under his lordship. We do that. But we do that in order that the outcome of our life will be the one that we desire. The outcome of our life will be the one that we get to control. And we do this in the way that we, in a lot of ways, right? But one of the main ways I think we do this is just look at the way that we parent. We parent our kids in such a way where we believe that if we can just get them into the right school, if we can just get them into the right setting, if we can just get them into and around the right people, get them into a good church, a part of a good children's program, get them into a good youth group, send them to the Christian camps, send them to the Christian universities. If we can control all of that for our kids, then the outcome is that they will walk with Christ forever. And there are times that that happens. But for every story that we know that that is true, there are also times that if you are a parent, you know you can control all of those details for your kids, do all the right things for your kids, and you know that you can only hope to influence them. You cannot control or determine what they will do when they move out what kind of faith they will have. You cannot control or determine what kind of experiences in life they will have. You can only hope to influence. The life under God is one in which we are trying to control every aspect of our world and we do it under a facade of saying we're doing it as an act of obedience for God. But the reality is we're doing it so we can control the outcome of our life. But what happens When you control all of it and the outcome isn't what you desired? What happens when you do everything to make the marriage work and the marriage still falls apart? What happens when you pray all the prayers you know to pray and yet they seem to go unanswered? You see, the life under God, there's a backdrop behind it. And the backdrop behind it is a kind of common wisdom that has gone throughout humanity for all of history. And the common wisdom is this, that the righteous will always prosper, but the wicked will always suffer. And what is behind that is a belief and a view that God orders his world through reward and retribution. So if you do what is good, God will reward you. If you do what is wrong, sinful, bad, then retribution is in store for you. And on the surface, it sounds right. But if you dig a little deeper, you actually come to find out is that really the life that I want to live? Is that what I really want to believe? Is it true? Does God order his world with reward and retribution? Does he reward and give punishment? Does he order his world like that? Do the wicked always suffer and do the righteous always prosper? I want to look at a a book in the Old Testament. Many of you probably know it. It's the book of Job. I told Whitney that I was going to be preaching out of Job, and she said, well, that should be encouraging. This is going to be an uplifting Sunday, right? But if you have your Bibles, I do believe that there is good news for us in the book of Job. And I want to read toward the end of the book of Job, and I will read in chapters 41 and 42. But before I get there, I do want to set the scene for you. The book of Job is... It's either one of the oldest books of the Bible or it is the oldest book of the Bible. And the way that it's written, it's written in a way where the setting is somewhat vague. It's written in a way where uh, although Job is described as a blameless man, and he's described that by God, you don't have to be blameless in order to understand the book of Job. Although Job is described as blameless, You don't have to be a Christian in order to empathize with what Job goes through. You see, the book of Job is this kind of universal story where regardless of who you are and where you approach the story from, it speaks to you. The only thing you really need to know in order to access Job is is that you need to know what pain feels like. You need to know what suffering feels like. Because although Job is described as a blameless man, Job loses everything. Job, at the beginning of the book, is wealthy and prosperous with a large family. And in one day, he loses all of his children. He loses all of his wealth. And he's left with his wife, but you come to find out that that wasn't really a blessing either. Because his wife comes to him, and his wife says, curse God and die. And she leaves him. And then the next go around, Job has his health struck So Job doesn't even have his own health to hold on to. He has no one left around him. He has no wealth or prosperity left to to rest his life on. And yet he was described as a blameless man. And then the rest of the book, all the way up until chapter 38, is this back-and-forth debate and argument between Job and his friends. And Job's friends come to him, and they say things like, Job, when have the innocent ever perished? You see, Job's friends are functioning from an assumption that the the righteous always prosper, the wicked always suffer. We like to think and approach the book of Job from a place of trying to figure out why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering in the world? And if you try to approach the book of Job asking that question, you will be greatly disappointed at the end because there is no answer for that. God never answers that question. But the question that is at hand in the book of Job is, Do the righteous always prosper? Do the wicked always suffer? Does God order his world with reward and retribution? If he does, make sense of Job's life. But if that is not true, then how are we to relate with God? When so often we want to live a life under God, if I do what is right, God will bless me and reward me. And so you see this wrestling, this debating, this arguing going on in the book of Job. And then God shows up in chapter 38, and it says that God answers Job, or he speaks to Job from within a storm. But he doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Job wants answers. God just gives him more questions. He starts asking him things like, Well, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he starts asking him questions like, You know, Job, uh, did you set the limits of the sea? Did you shut the sea behind the doors and tell the sea and its proud waves, you can come this far and no further? He says, tell me, Job, if you were there, tell me how all of this came to be. Job wants, he wants fairness and justice, but God gives him omnipotence. Job wants clarity, but God just gives him wisdom. And then you get to chapter 41. And chapter 41 is one of the most curious chapters in all of Scripture, at least in my opinion. Because God gives Job all these questions, and then he, asks, he starts into chapter 41, and he says this. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? Do you know who Leviathan is? Leviathan is this creature of the sea. And the sea, throughout all of ancient Near Eastern thought, the sea was always a depiction of chaos, of this uncontrollable force, of this kind of of stirring in our world that comes to strike that you cannot manage, you cannot control. And God starts talking to this man of deep suffering, and he says, Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook? Or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? I love what he says here. Will it speak to you with gentle words? Can this monster of chaos, Leviathan, will it whisper sweet nothings to you, Job? He says, will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? And he says, and can you make a pet of it like a bird? or put it on a leash for the young women in your home. I mean, this is rather curious, right? These are some of the last words that we have recorded that God would speak to a man in deep suffering, and God is choosing to talk about a mythical creature, a kind of monster under the bed, a a monster from the deep. I mean, God, Job needs comfort. He needs answers. He needs some clarity here. He needs to know how you're going to redeem all of this. And God spends time talking about a monster of the deep. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. It's breath sets coals a blade and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as a rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. These don't sound like comforting words to a man in suffering, do they? It it sounds like God is saying, look at how bad this, this chaos actually is. And Job, you can't have it. You have no hope of subduing it. Can you put a leash around its neck? Can you take it home as a pet for your girls? But here's what I think God is really doing and why I read this. And I think there's good news for us in this poem. Because I read this, and I see God giving Job an invitation. He gives him the invitation to look deep into the chaotic monster, deep into the chaos, and to discover that God is bigger. He gives him this invitation to say, Job, look at how bad this, this Leviathan is. Look at how bad this chaos is. I want you to look deep into it and to discover can ho- you have no hope of subduing it, but I can. You have no hope of limiting its effects, but I can. You have no way of of limiting this chaos, but I can here 's why I think this is good news i 'll explain it with this story. Uh, my dad has always been a busybody. My dad is like many of you i 've met many of you, and you have retired from your job like three or four times, right? Retirement means not that you actually enter retirement. You just get to go on and do something else that you would rather do. And so, my dad is like that. My dad has always been a busybody. He's retired three or four times. And, um, and I remember the last time he retired, he was so extremely bored at home that he just had to get busy doing something. So anytime I call home, I'm like, dad, what are you working on now? There's always a project, right? But when I was younger, my dad was still that busybody. But there were moments when I was at home that I would find my dad as the stillest man that I've ever seen. But it was in some of the most chaotic times. It was whenever the strongest storm blew through our town. My mom would be the one that she would run into the basement, but my dad would be the one that he would walk out onto the porch, and he would sit. And so often I would find that when the storms come through our town, you could find my mom in the basement, my dad's out on the porch, and my dad was calm. So I would walk out on the porch with him, and I would just sit there, not because I really cared to watch the storm, but I was watching this calm, still man. And it was, he was so still that it was almost reverent. You didn't want to disturb him. But one time I, I, I got enough courage, and I asked him, I said, Dad, why is it every time a storm comes through, Mom's in the basement, you're out here on the porch, right? My dad would love to live in Oklahoma, that when the tornado sirens would go off, he'd be walking outside, right? Look at this. Why is that, dad? And he would. He told me this. He says, I like to come out on the porch to watch the storm pass by, because no matter how big or bad the storm is, I'm always reminded that my God is bigger. No matter how big or bad the storm is, I'm always reminded That my God is bigger when you live a life under God with the assumption that if you do what is right and what is good that reward and blessing will be the outcome you will ultimately be disappointed when the storm comes by because you will be wondering why is the storm here but the reality is when the storm comes when the chaos stirs what God is actually doing is he is inviting us to look deep into the storm deep into the sea, deep into the chaos, and to discover that no matter how big or bad the chaos is, my God is still bigger. No matter what circumstances I may be going through, my God is still bigger. That is the invitation that, that God gives to Job, and it's the invitation he extends to us as well to look into the chaos, into the storm, and to discover that our God is, is still bigger. Now, this is different than what we often say when we are in hardship. When we are in hardship, we often say, well, I know God is in control. But the reality is, we, not, we, we do not need to only say God is in control. We also need to say that God is uncontrollable. God is outside of the chaos that we experience. And whether the chaos was created by somebody that we are suffering from, or whether the chaos was something that our own actions stirred up, our God stands outside of it. And if he is outside of it, then he will help us sustain through it. Our God, if he is bigger than the chaos, then he is the one who is able to sustain us through the chaos. He upholds us. He guides us. He sustains us through it. And this is why the book of Job is so good news. I'm thankful that we have a God that is at times able to hold up the monsters of chaos and say, you can't subdue it. But I can. But that leads us to another question. Well, if he can, then why is it that at the end of Job, Leviathan is still alive. This monster of chaos, when you get to the end of Job, God doesn't kill Leviathan. In fact, you're left to believe that Leviathan is let loose to still swim in the seas of chaos again. Why is that? I, uh, a couple weeks ago, hopped on a plane... We were flying out to um, me, Pastor Jake, Pastor Chris, Pastor Casey, and Pastor Brighton. We were flying out to a, a conference. And um, I'm sitting across the aisle from, from uh, Casey. And Casey and I were reading the same book a, at the time. Um, he was actually reading the book. I was listening to it on an audio book, okay? Um, I, and, and, and Casey was asking me, How far are you in the book? And I said, Oh, about halfway. And I said, Casey, how far are you? He's like, I just, I just read the prelude. Did you read the prelude? And I said, no, I, I didn't read the prelude. And he, if you ever want to shot Casey, just let him know that you're a person that skips the preludes or something. Because he says, Dan, you got to read the prelude. And I said, why? He said, well, the prelude tells you where the story is heading. Or it tells you where the book is going or where the author is going to take you. And I told him, well, I could just read the book and find out where he's going to take me, right? Why do I have to read the prelude? You see, I'm the kind of person that you can tell me the spoiler to a movie, I'm completely fine with that. I'm the kind of person that if the movie is boring, I'm going to fast forward and get to the end. I want to see the resolution. And I think that's exactly how many of us live. We live in a world where chaos exists. We live in a world where suffering exists, where pain exists, and we often want to get through it or to eliminate it altogether. We want to get to the end of the story where everything is resolved, where there is redemption to be found. We try to pass through everything else that stops us from that. We live in that kind of world, right? And and so I called Casey up the other day, and I said, Casey, tell me again why I need to read the prelude. And he says, listen, you have to read the prelude because we live in a world where we want answers for our problems. We live in a world where we want resolution and redemption and restoration, and we want to move to it as quickly as possible. But the prelude, what it makes you do, is it makes you sit in your questions, sit in the mystery, sit in the doubt of it, and anticipate what's to come. And that is what happens in the book of Job. Sure, there is kind of a resolution at the at the end of Job. Job gets a family. He gets his wealth and prosperity restored. Sure, that happens. But that seems like more of a footnote than an actual resolution to the story. At the end, before you get to that, you will read what Job says in chapter 42. And this is what Job says. As God has just described Leviathan and says that chaos exists, and God gives no answers but just gives questions, As as God gives no clarity but just gives mystery, and before the resolution happens, Job says this, I know that you can do all things. You're bigger than the chaos that I'm experiencing. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, "Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me." And then verse 5, "My ears had heard of you, but now, but now before the resolution, before the redemption, before the good news but now my eyes have seen you but now my eyes have seen you and this is where the good news is for us for those of us who are tempted to live our lives as a life under God if I do what is good and what is right God will reward me. If you ever find out that the outcome isn't what you expected, if you ever come to find out that the outcome isn't something you can control, if you ever find yourself in a place of suffering and of pain, you don't need to wait until you get to the other side of suffering to be able to find out that you can actually see God with you in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain. Before Job has anything restored to him, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. We we find ourselves in the season of Lent, where we're on a journey toward Easter. And many of us, especially if we live a life under God, we are so preoccupied with the outcome That we will rush toward the empty tomb because what the empty tomb tells us, the empty tomb tells us that death and suffering will not last forever. The empty tomb tells us that sin will not win. The empty tomb tells us that at some point chaos will be put in its grave. You can go all the way to Revelation 21 and you will find in Revelation 21 the depiction that the new heavens and the new earth, when they come and restore this earth, that they are going to come and in the new creation, there will be no more sea. Do you know why it says that? It's not because we won't be able to experience days at the beach anymore. It's because in the new creation, there will be no more chaos. There will be no more disorder. There will be no more dismay. That God will eliminate that. But we are not there yet. The empty tomb tells us that there will be a day in which Leviathan will be laid in a grave. But right now, we exist in a place in which the, the thing that we are focused on, the thing in which we read everything through, we read Job and we read our entire world through, is not the empty tomb always. We sometimes have to read everything through the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ tells us that you don't have to get to the empty tomb to realize that our God, although he is bigger and greater and beyond our chaos, our God knows what it's like to suffer. Our God knows our pain. Our God knows what death tastes like. The cross tells us that our God comes to us in our pain, in our suffering, and he is there with us. And you don't have to get to the end of the story and only discover that God was with you in hindsight. You can live a life where even in the midst of the pain and the suffering, your eyes could be open to God being with you there. You see, what Job tells us, it's not that our faith is built on reason, and it's not that our faith is built on clarity. It's not that our faith is built on having an answer for every question. What Job tells us is that if we look through the suffering of God, if we look through the cross of Christ, we will see God there with us in the midst of the chaos. We will see God there with us before the resolution. We will see God is there with us before the resurrection, that He's always been with us, that the outcome isn't the only thing for us to desire. It's his presence with us through it all that we should desire. The life, of God, the life under God will never satisfy because we will end up trusting in our own actions to control the outcomes of our life. And what God is trying to show us in the book of Job and through our pain and through our suffering is that he is not a prisoner to our actions. He is not held captive by what we do or what chaos stirs in our world, he is not limited by any of that. He is also not afraid of any of that. And so he meets us in our pain, in our suffering, in our chaos, that our eyes might be open to reimagine a God who knows what death and suffering taste like, and to trust that this God is good, and this God is enough, that this God is the one that sustains. And so he gives that invitation to Job, but he gives us that invitation as well. He gives us the invitation to say, come, when the pain is too much, when the suffering is too heavy, come and discover, to have your eyes open, that I am a God with you even there. So would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we often try to come to this book and come to this story to try and master it, to try and get answers, to try and figure out why the suffering and pain or chaos exist. But Lord, I think all that you ask us to do is to come in honestly. Say, Lord, this, this is too much for me to bear. Lord, this is too heavy for me to carry. And I may not know why this is happening. I may not be able to make sense of it. But Lord, I trust that you do. I trust that, that you can sustain me. I trust that you are here with me. And so Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to your people today. That you would meet us where we are. In our honesty, in our brokenness, in the heaviness of our hearts. And may we have our eyes open to you being with us even there. pray all this in Jesus' name.